So pop quiz. <laughs> I know, it's the, your favorite words, right? So uh, in the New Testament, can you name the disciples? Now, some of you are like, dude, if I knew it was going to be Bible trivia day, I would not have come, right? Like, lots of you have just come to Christ. You, you know your life is messed up. You know you need a Savior. Jesus is the Savior. You receive Christ and you love him, but you don't even know where the New Testament is, right? Like, you know, I don't know, man. If there was a quiz, I wouldn't have come. Now, for all those of you, you're kind of rolling back the tapes on childhood or whatever, and you're trying to remember uh, the names of guys like, uh, some of you would get Peter and his brother Andrew and maybe James and John. You know Judas that betrayed, right? And there's Doubting Thomas, there's Matthew. Maybe you get Philip and Bartholomew. I mean, there's another James and another Judas. Maybe you get that close, I don't know. But let me tell you, it's a trick question. The whole thing's a setup. Let me ask you a question. Raise your hand right now. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Okay. So when we ask, name the disciples in the New Testament, you realize how impossible that is? I mean, there are lots of guys. So what we're dealing with right now is the difference between two words, the word disciple and the word apostle. Okay. And I want to define those for you. You could actually think of it as disciple with a lowercase d and the next word apostle is disciple with an uppercase d. All right. Well, let's talk about disciples. Disciples are not, that's not a person who studies a subject. That's a person who follows a teacher. And, and there's a relationship there and there's life impact there. There's also a desire to export that teacher's teachings. And in the New Testament, there are lots of them. Today we'll be in Luke chapter 6. When we get to Luke 10, we'll see there's about 70 or 72 of them that Jesus sends out two by two. When you get to the beginning of Acts, also written by Luke, there are 120 gathered in Jerusalem awaiting Pentecost. And then the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he's talking about resurrection appearances of Jesus before he ascended. And he says that Jesus appeared to more than 500 at one time. We're not sure when that was. If you look at Mark 16, 7, it seems like it might be in Galilee right now. You don't care. I'm just being a pastor geek. So there it is. <laughs> but, but 71, 2,500, you have to name 500 people. You can't do it, okay? So there are a lot of disciples. But then there is this other word, apostle. Now, what is that? This is the capital D, disciple. There are 12. Sometimes in the New Testament, they're just referred to as the twelve. And what an apostle is, it's, that is an ambassador, an emissary, a messenger. It's one who goes, who is sent from another with the full authority and message of the sender. That is an apostle. And the confusion comes up because sometimes in the New Testament, the 12 are referred to as the disciples. And so that's why I could play a trick on you. And I don't get to have a lot of fun, so that's what I do. So there it is. So two words, disciples and apostles. Now, Jesus, in our passage today, he is going to choose the 12 apostles. This is a really big deal in the history of the church. Jesus knows that, so he spends all night in prayer, like literally stays up all night praying. Have you ever done that? Probably not, right? Here's what we do. We live our life, we mess it up, and then we pray and ask God to fix it. Jesus is saying, what if you pray on the front end? What if you ask God's guidance and help on the front end before you mess it up? And that is what he's doing. So the Son of God is going before the Father asking for wisdom and guidance and leadership. And that's where we pick it up in Luke chapter 6, verse 12. 
in these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he got some coffee. (laughs) That's how I imagine it happened. But anyway, when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12. Notice that he called this big group of disciples and chooses 12 out of the disciples. There's the trick question. So he chooses 12 whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. What I want to kick around today is why the twelve. I don't mean the number 12. Why did he pick 12 of them? Scholars speculate, remember there were 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus is now redeeming. He's presenting the new Israel, the church, and so he had 12 apostles. That might well be the case, why he did that. But I'm not interested in the number 12. The question really is, why did he choose a small group? Happened to be 12. Why did he choose 12 apostles? I'm going to give you four reasons, and the first one is this. I think he wanted a band of brothers. Did you notice in our passage, it began with in these days. That is a clue. Our author, Luke, is not writing just the passage we wrote. He wrote a whole book, and it's in, our passage is in the midst of that book, and he gave a clue in these days. So he's connecting our passage to what came before. What came before? Well, starting at the beginning of chapter 5, Jesus has been butting heads with the Pharisees over and over again. It began in chapter 5 with, remember, the healing of the paralytic, and the question came up, who could forgive sins? And the Pharisees and Jesus, they, they cross swords on that one. And then after that, he, remember, he calls Levi or Matthew to be not only his disciple, but eventually an apostle. A tax collector? No way. The Pharisees hated that. And then Jesus went and ate at Levi's home with his friends. Remember, they were all bent out of shape about that one. And and then they, when we heard Pastor Jared preach last week, we saw they got their knickers in a twist because they're like, why why are your disciples not fasting? And there's the Pharisees again. And then it was the issue of they were picking grains on the Sabbath and and eating them. You can't gasp. You can't do that. And then Jesus healed that one guy's hand on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees were upset. So you have this like relentless barrage, one story after another, of the Pharisees and Jesus butting heads. And Luke says, in these days. That's the context. That's the context. In the midst of all that junk going on, Jesus chooses a posse. He gets a small group. He gets a band of brothers. Now, yes, there are strategic reasons that have to do with apostleship and leadership. We'll talk about that in a bit. But first, I think one of the reasons is because Jesus is human. And he's feeling the pain of all the opposition. And he says, you know what? I need a band of brothers around me. And he gets a band of brothers. And listen, what I'm telling you right now is you cannot do Christianity alone. There will be Pharisees, not literally, but like life will throw crap at you just like it did at Jesus and you will need a circle of sisters or a band of brothers around you, surrounding you. Jesus is surrounded by multitudes of the culture, of the crowds out there. That's not good enough. He's got 70 to 500 in a a congregation. Not good enough. He knows that's too big and he chooses 12. He gets a band of brothers. Some people, he will know them. And they will know Jesus personally, intimately. 
They will be able to pray for each other, do life, do life together, and share burdens together. And that does not happen in a group of 70 to 500 people. It just doesn't. And so he gets a band of brothers. Listen, at our church, we say, no, grow, go. We want you to know Jesus Christ personally, grow in your relationship with him, and go advance his kingdom. No, grow, go. Hear me clearly. You cannot grow. You will not grow as you should if you do not have a small group of like-minded disciples in your life. You will need those. If you only come on Sunday morning, you do not get church. You get a worship service. That's just a, a slice of church. There's stuff you're missing in there. And so you will be lost. If you just come on Sunday morning, you'll be lost in a crowd of 1,200. That's our average. Okay? That's not a band of brothers. It's a little too large right there, right? So you're lost in that. And you know it. You know when you come on Sunday morning, you can hide. You can dabble. You can drift. And Jesus wants more for you than that. He wants a, a small group in your life. There is another problem, of course, if you don't get that small group. You will be unsupported. Unsupported. Listen, there's an issue called span of care. The question is, how many people can one pastor practically know and, and minister to on an interpersonal level? Not just preaching sermons like this, but like, what is that? And there's various numbers, but can I just suggest something to you? We have, on average, we have around, we guess, around 1,400 people involved in our church. We have two pastors. Do the math. <laughs> One to 700, I guarantee you, is beyond the span of care. All right? Like, it's way outside that. So here's what I'm saying. I can't possibly know you. People, have you not figured out I'm name-challenged? I stink at this. I'm atrium challenge. I, the atrium is just full of fear for me. Like, you're like, I just can't do it. I am name challenge. Here's why I don't meet people in context. I meet people in passing. When you meet people, that's being in a small group together, in a band of brothers, or, or my kid's on a soccer team with your kid, right? And we get all season. I don't do it. I meet people in passing in the atrium. I get their name, and there's 20 more behind them. And the wild expectation is that uh, people expect Jared and I to, we got to remember their name, their kids' names, the car they drive, what service they go to, all the prayer requests they've mentioned for the last five years, right? I mean, it's just crazy. It's just crazy. I can't possibly know you. I can't. I also can't pray for all your needs. I also can't visit you in the hospital. I'm not going to mow your grass while you're in the hospital. And when you get home from the hospital, I will not be dropping off a meal. You see, that is just a span of care issue. All I'm saying, I'm just being humble right now. Here's what I'm saying. I'm not Jesus. And I'm not the body of Christ. I was never intended to be. I am just a pastor. That is it. And you need a small group. You need a band of brothers, a circle of sisters in your life. People who know you, love you, care for you, support you. And if you don't have that, I am afraid for you. So Pastor Jared's announcement this morning is dead on. Go to Redemption 101. That's a great starting point. Get in a men's Bible study. Get in a women's Bible study. Get in a community group. If not, you will not grow as you should. If not, you will not be supported. If not, you will have ridiculous expectation on your pastors. Stuff that we can't possibly meet, we won't meet. And you'll pretty soon find out, yeah, we ain't God. We ain't even close. And then you'll get frustrated and you'll probably leave. That's usually the pattern. 
I want more for you than that. Get in a group. And by the way, if you're in a group, make it into a circle of sisters. Make it into a band of brothers. Not just a group of warm bodies. Just because you're in a group doesn't mean anything. You're going to have to take a risk. You're going to have to open up your life. You're going to have to invest in people, love people, move toward people. Do life together. Make it that kind of group, okay? Get in a group. So, so I think one of the reasons Jesus chose the 12 is he as a human being knew he needed a band of brothers in his life. But then secondly, of course, for leadership. He needed some leaders. This is why he named them apostles or ambassadors for him. So what's that mean? What did they do? Well, the parallel passage in Mark chapter 3 gives us kind of a little bit more data on that. Look with me, if you will, at Mark 3, verse 14. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. You see, I highlighted some things. They were with him. So they're his band of brothers, yes. But there's also another angle to this. That means they are with him to be witnesses. Those 12 would be the witnesses to who Jesus is, what he did, what he said. And as witnesses, they would give their lives. They would become martyrs. So, so don't, don't misunderstand something. Like, it's not privilege. It's responsibility. Don't miss that. Leadership is not privilege. It's responsibility. Oh, I pray that everyone within the body of Christ gets this. Whether you're a pastor or a lay leader, leadership is not privilege. It is responsibility. So they get to be with him, which means not only banner brothers, but also martyrs. And then uh, they are to preach. They are to teach. They're to have doctrinal authority in the church. The apostles become the foundation of the church. Does that maybe strike you funny? Wait, isn't Jesus the foundation? If you go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, it says that Jesus is the cornerstone. The prophets and the apostles are the foundation. Why? That's our scripture right there. They have unique authority from Jesus to lay out the New Testament. And it comes back to their apostolic authority. They're to preach. And then thirdly, they have authority to cast out demons, which means he gave them unique giftings to verify, to authenticate their ministry so that we know they're the real deal and then the New Testament sticks. And so these guys are chosen to be leaders. Now, you should know it's a set number in that office. Like when Judas betrayed and killed himself, they voted to replace him. So they had 12 witnesses. But did you know, like as Peter died, they didn't replace Peter and Andrew. and They didn't keep replacing guys. Why? Those were a set 12 guys in history. That office has now been closed. That job's been filled. But there were requirements then for who these guys would be. And the typical requirements that are named for an apostle is that you have to have seen the risen Christ physically on earth and have to have been chosen by Christ. But I want to add a third one in. You have to be a disciple. Maybe that, that's obvious to you. But, but did you notice he brought his crowd of disciples and chose 12 among them, which means the one prerequisite to being an apostle is that you first have to be a disciple, a follower of that teacher of Jesus himself. And this is an important point because what, what it means is first you have to be under authority before you can be in authority. It's really important. 
What happens sometimes is we have people who maybe transfer here from another church. Maybe they were a big dog at that church. They're used to leading something. And they show up and they say, I'm here, y'all. I'm here, pastor. Put me in. And my response is, first you have to be under authority before you can be in authority. Let me show you where our membership class is. And, and get in gear and let's see. Let's see, right? And, and sometimes that's frustrating. But Jesus says, look, first you be a disciple before you be an apostle. Right? Now, I wonder, though, if, uh, as far as the requirements go, if you noticed anything else about that list of 12. Here's the passage from Luke 6. Ladies, did you notice anything? They're all dudes, aren't they? They're all dudes. Now, I really wish I didn't have to address this today because it's not germane to what I want to talk about. But I also realize in today's culture that that list right there is going to upend some issues for you as modern people. Uh, And so I've got to acknowledge the elephant in the room, take a sidebar and talk about it. Let me begin here. Jesus was wildly countercultural all the time. Touching a leper, nobody did that. Jesus didn't care. He did it anyway. He'd break the rules all the time. He took a tax collector on, not only as a disciple, but as an apostle. No way. Yep, he's in. He took the marginalized, the outcasts, all the time. He elevated the position of women. Like, the first witnesses to the resurrection were women. You don't do that. She said, I don't care. I did. He was countercultural all the time. Breaking the Sabbath laws? I mean, he just, without hesitation, was countercultural. And then he chooses 12 dudes as apostles. What about that? Listen, the scriptures affirm two things that we have to hold on to. Number one, the equality of women, the value, the dignity, the equal gifting. They are equal image bearers. It's not women, it's equal, equal. And then secondly, the scriptures also affirm male leadership in the church. You look at 1 Timothy chapter 2 and chapter 3. You look at Titus chapter 1. I mean, it's in there. Male elders, male pastors. Both are there. So you say, well, that was just cultural. No, Jesus was countercultural all the time, and he stuck with 12 dudes as apostles. You read 1 Timothy chapter 2. The apostle Paul pegged male leadership in the church. His, the Holy Spirit-inspired word of God, the justification, he pegged it to the pre-fall created order, which means before sin entered the world, at the very beginning of creation, when God set things up, Paul tied it to that, which is way back, that's transcultural. Say, okay, well then I just don't like it. I get that. (laughs) Like, I understand that. But then let me just point out this. Now you're not arguing with me, you're arguing with God's scriptures, and I'm out. It's between you two. Yeah, right? like, like it's not, it's, we're just going. Here's the thing. At Redemption Chapel, we are going to hold to the scriptures as best as we are able every time. We're not going to follow the shifting winds and the shifting opinions of our culture. Sometimes we will be countercultural in that way. And we're okay with that. So what we do is we affirm the full dignity, the full gifting and equality, the value, the beauty of women. And then we affirm male leadership in the church because it's there in the scriptures. But don't miss this. I've already told you. Leadership is not privilege. It is responsibility. It is a call to come and die for the church. Be careful what you ask for. You don't want it. (laughs) So so just be careful in that, okay? All right, enough of that sidebar. So Jesus chooses a band of brothers. He chooses leaders. 
And then number three, I think he chose these guys to display God's grace and his glory. <laughs> if, you, if you pay attention to who he chose, like it makes the Cleveland Browns look good at picking a team. Right? Like, like I'm looking at that thing going, that is not an impressive list of dudes. None of us would have chosen them. In fact, let's look at 1 Corinthians. Because that's, that's by design. Look at this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that, look at this, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. <laughs> I'm a pastor. That's not flattering to me. You get there like, I'm a, hey, dang it, <laughs> it's not flattering. But that's the way it is. When you look at the list of the 12 apostles, there are no aristocrats on there. There's probably nobody wealthy on there except Levi who got it by being a trader with Rome and stealing tax money. Okay, that's probably the only rich dude on there. And you just look at, I mean, there's, there are no scribes, no Pharisees, no priests. Like when Jesus went to choose his team, he didn't go to the seminary or at that time, he didn't go up to the temple and start taking applications. He chose fishermen from among his disciples. I mean, fishermen, are you serious? And then, and then tax, he chose a tax collector. <laughs> you remember back like when you were young and you played pickup football games in the backyard or whatever, and how you'd have like, you'd choose the two best guys and they'd be captains, right? And then you'd alternate choosing teams. Remember choosing teams, how that went? Okay, I was never one of the best. So I was never the captain, but I was the captain's best friend, right? So you know, the captain always picks his best friend first. So I was one of the first chosen next to my buddy, right? Okay, I want you to imagine, like, like, the next pick, the captain, you know how there's always that one scrawny little kid that's terrible at sports? He's always chosen last, but he shows up every time. What if the captain picks that guy next? I'm there going, no. No, what are you doing? Not that guy. Listen, listen, when Jesus chose his team, if I were there, I would have been going, no, no, not that guy. Don't pick that guy. But that's what he's doing. He's choosing a tax collector for his team. Are you kidding me? And then did you notice who else he put on his team? Simon the Zealot. Do you know what a zealot is? It's a political insurgent. This would have been part of the resistance against Rome. So you have Matthew, who's a traitor for Rome collecting taxes, and you have Simon, who would kill Matthew on the same team. How does, that doesn't work except with Jesus. Like Jesus all the time takes people who would fight in the world and puts them on the same team and says, you're family. And that's what he's doing. He's displaying his grace and his glory. That's what he does. And then he picks a traitor. He puts Judas on the team. Are you kidding me? A traitor? You know what Judas reminds us of? <laughs> First of all, notice there's two Judas, two guys named Judas on the team, right? Could you imagine me and the other Judas? Wouldn't that stink? Like for the rest of your life, you're going around preaching, yeah, I'm impossible. What's your name? Judas. <gasps> no, not that Judas, Right? <laughs> He actually has two names. He has the name Thaddeus. Eventually, he just says, call me Thaddeus. He does. He goes by, he goes by Thaddeus. So anyway, so, so there is a traitor on the team, though. Judas, the, the traitor. And what's this remind us of? A position of leadership does not necessarily mean spiritual maturity. And I've seen that over the years. 
doesn't mean you're spiritually mature. Listen, the most spiritually mature person in our congregation might be setting up coffee and donuts this morning. Might be serving back in the kids' zone. Might not be an elder. Spiritual authority does not necessarily mean spiritual maturity. We want it to. But look, we understand that to be a disciple means you can walk with Jesus, love Jesus, serve Jesus, and be very mature in Jesus. Because it's all about his grace and it's all about his glory. So as he picks these apostles, he picks a motley crew. And who gets the glory? Not those guys. Jesus gets the glory all the way through. Like you watch the gospels, these guys are idiots. It's a comedy of errors. They're messing up all the time. And then you get to Acts and there's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And now all of a sudden these guys are studs. I guess Jesus gets the glory because he's got the grace. That's part of what I think is going on there. And then fourth and last uh, reason he chose these guys is multiplication. Listen, we say, Luke, this changes everything. Jesus came to save the world. He came to change the world. And so he's going to change the world. And so he chooses 12 guys and spends most of his time just hanging out with them. Has it ever occurred to you that Jesus didn't write a book? Isn't that kind of wild? Like, I would have planned it differently. Like, if I were in Jesus' shoes, I would not have spoken the, the Sermon on the Mount. I would have written it down for you. Like, give me a scroll. Jesus didn't write any books. Instead, he spent his time with 12 guys writing onto their lives. That's interesting. I would say, Jesus, the crowds need you. The crowds love you. But why are you wasting your time with just 12 guys? Let me give you a, a little bit of a math word problem. <laughs> Bible trivia and math word problems. This is a great warning. All right, so uh, you get, take a little kid and you say, hey, I'm going to give you an allowance. And I'll give you two choices, A and B. Choice A, you're going to get a dollar a week just to start off with. But then the next week you get $2. The next week you get $3 and it goes up a dollar a week. Or you give option B and option B is you get to start out with a penny but it will double every week. It'll be two cents, then four cents, then six cents. Now you've already seen the punchline. You've seen the chart. So you know you'd choose B. But every child would choose A every time. What you're looking at there is the difference between addition and multiplication. And you're thinking, what the heck does this have to do with ministry? Let me show you. Look at this next chart. This is ministry. This is generations of discipleship. Now, let's, let's go with addition. So the first generation works this way. There's two pastors, me and Pastor Jared, right? And so the way it works is Pastor Jared and I, we go out, we each get a disciple, we bring them back, we say, hey, you two work, wait here. And then we go out for generation two, and we get two more disciples, we bring them back, you four wait here. And then we go out, because you know only pastors do ministry, right? Not disciples. Uh, maybe not. But anyway, so we keep going out, and we just keep adding two. Or we could go with multiplication. And the way that works is Pastor Jared and I, we go and we each get two disciples. But disciples are not supposed to be dead ends, but through streets. And so each of those two, well, that's a generation of four right there. Each of those go and they get two. Now you've got eight in that generation. And each of those eight go and they each get two disciples. Now you've got 16. And so you see by generation by generation, you get down to the 15th generation and you have 32,000 people in that generation. That's just that generation. But the whole church, you have to add them all up and you'd have 65,000 people in the church. And now my parking problems just got way worse. <laughs> that freaks me out right there. 
Right, but here's the thing. Ministry is never, never that neat and tidy. It doesn't work like that. But, but at least you get a hint of maybe the Lord of heaven and earth, Jesus himself, maybe he knows what he's up to when he's investing in 12 guys because he's not looking to go do addition where Jesus gets a guy and gets a guy. He's looking to get 12 guys who themselves go and they turn the world upside down. That's what he's doing. So he spends time with those 12 through streets, not dead ends. So we say, no, grow, go. The go part is interesting. So Jesus takes the apostles and he instantly puts them in gear in ministry. He does on-the-job training with them. And as they go doing ministry for him, they grow. We tend to, at times in modern Christianity, we try to play that a different way. We say, no, 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 first I need to grow. Just feed me, feed me, take care of me, which means I'm going to start out with selfishness, by the way, never an ingredient for Christian growth, right? But just feed me, feed me. I'm not going to exercise my faith. I'm just going to feed my face. That's not healthy. And so Jesus puts people in gear. He's not looking for dead ends. He's looking for through streets for people who will go, go. Those are the four reasons why I think Jesus chose the 12. Now I want to give you a little bit of a contrast to the rest of the multitudes and the crowds that are out there by just sharing with you the next few verses out of Luke 6, starting in verse 17. It says, And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. Now, look at that first sentence carefully. There's a couple different groups represented there. It says Jesus came down with them. That's the 12 disciples. So there's the disciples, or so the apostles, and then it said he came down and he stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples. So there's the 70 to 500 of his congregation. And in addition to them, then there's these multitudes, just the culture, everybody that's trying to get near Jesus, interested in Jesus. Notice they're not disciples. They're not followers of Jesus. Instead, they're really there to take something, meet my needs. They're not kingdom-minded. They're meet my needs-minded people. Those are the multitudes. Now, some got out of the multitudes and became disciples. How? Because they didn't follow a subject. They followed a teacher. They loved Jesus. They got near Jesus. That's what's going on there. They get near him. And so as they get near him, then they they start to care about what he cares about. And from them, then Jesus chooses apostles or leaders to be be his leaders. Now, here's the thing, though, that we can learn from this. You do not need to be a leader to be one who has influence for Jesus. In fact, if you're a disciple, you're supposed to go. You're supposed to be doing things, serving, giving, loving, reaching out. That's a disciple thing. And just by default, an apostle thing, because an apostle is a disciple. You see that? What I want you to do is I want you to get out of the multitude. I want you to get in the game. I want you to get going. Move from spectator to disciple. Move from consumer to servant. Move from my kingdom to Christ's kingdom. I want you to get going. Get going. 
Now listen, we've covered a lot this morning. Let me let you know three things that I want you to get from this. Number one, you got to get near Jesus. That, you got to get, did you notice that they were trying to get near Jesus because he had the power to heal, but they had to be near Jesus to be healed by Jesus. You got to get near Jesus. And as you do, you got to get in relationship. You got to let him impact your life, change your life. Don't dabble. Don't try to keep him at bay while you're trying to get close. That's silly. Get near Jesus. Just as fall, because we love addiction recovery ministry, we're going to be starting an AA group right here. But we also realize that if they, if they just get AA, but they don't get near Jesus, it probably won't last. It won't help. You need to get near Jesus. That's where the change comes in. All my addicts in the crowd right now are nodding. I love it. Okay, so, uh, so th- there it is. Now, you, also, you need to let Jesus change your life, all right? Don't just dabble. Be a follower of him. That's what he chose in his apostles, right? People who got near him. So you got to get near Jesus. Number two, you got to get in a group. Get in a group. You need a band of brothers. You need a circle of sisters. Get out of the crowd and get in a group. And then number three, get going. Get going. As we go into the fall, you realize fall is a time where people in our culture and the multitudes out there sometimes are more open to going back to church. What if you were thinking right now of two people? Just two people, because you're going to be in multiplication, not addition, right? And so you're thinking of two people that you're going to reach out to in Christ's name. And I want you to start to pray for them. Then I want you to start to care for them. You're going to express love in some way to them. And then you're going to look for an opportunity. No, you're going to take an opportunity to share Christ with them. Prayer, care, share. Can you do that with two people this fall so that all of us multiply? And then I'll cut another video. (laughs) Great. So try to figure that out. Cross that bridge when we come to it. But that's what I want you to do. I want you to get near Jesus. I want you to get in a group. And I want you to get going. Why? Because I love you. I want you to experience life as Christ intends it to be for you as his disciple. So let me pray for those things. Father, uh, it is fun to read 1 Corinthians and realize that by your choosing us as your disciples, that's not flattery. Um, and yet it's grace, and you get all the glory, and so we, we worship you in light of your grace right now. We give you all the glory. We are glad to be your kids. And yet, Father, we don't want to dabble. We want to get more near Jesus and let him change our lives. And then, Father God, we want to get in a group. We don't want to just kind of be lost in the crowd of disciples. We want to have a band of brothers, just like Jesus gave us the example. People who know us, we know them, and we support each other, and we challenge each other towards love and good deeds. And then, Father, would you use us to get going, that we would experience a wild adventure of being a part of your ministry, being used by you, reaching out to people. Lord, take us there, please. And I pray in Christ's name, amen.